From the Spyscape Podcast Network, this is The Spying Game. Over this season of The Spying Game, Rory Bremner will be joined by a mix of experts in the field of deception and fellow enthusiasts from the world of entertainment as they attempt to sort the Moscow rules from the Hollywood fabrication. Hello and welcome to The Spying Game. I'm Rory Bremner, comedian, mimic, spy enthusiast and professional liar. Each week on the show, we're tackling topics including double agents, escape, outfoxing the enemy, and betrayal. This time on The Spying Game, it's... From Russia, with love. He was a completely, apparently innocuous, actually rather boring, normal refugee housewife. In fact, in the back garden, she built a very powerful radio transmitter with which she was passing the secrets of how to build the atomic bomb to the Soviet Union. We knew if we do it that our past life is just over and uh, we are in a like, walking dead mode. We have to cut ties with all our friends. If you're crossing this, it's over. His signal for indicating to MI6 that he needed to be exfiltrated was that he had to be seen on a corner of a particular street on a particular day at a particular time holding, believe it or not, a plastic Safeways bag from the supermarket. <laughs> and if that was spotted, uh, the MI6 officer would acknowledge the receipt of the, of the escape signal by walking past him and eating a Mars bar. For them, I'm a traitor. I'm enemy of the state. Today, I'm talking to two guests who know what it's like to be multiple things to multiple people. But what makes a spy? What motivates someone to live a double life involving many personal sacrifices and risks to yourself and family? What happens when the cause you work for is compromised, corrupt, or even worse, abandons you? How do you sustain an existence where at any moment you could be exposed, betrayed, or even killed? I'm joined by an author, documentary maker and broadcaster who's told some of the most amazing stories in modern history. The man behind Operation Mincemeat, A Spy Among Friends, The Spy and the Traitor, and his latest, the brilliant and compelling story of Agent Sonia. It's historian Ben McIntyre. We're also lucky enough to have a former Russian FSB officer turned whistleblower with us. Yanosh Neumann, welcome to The Spying Game. And just to prove the point about multiple identities, Yanosh, that's not your real name. When did that become your identity? My name was changed officially, or let's say unofficially, in uh, 2008 <laughs> here in States by US government after they brought me and my wife to United States. It was created also a legend behind the name as well that I was born in Czechoslovakia. Then my family moved to Soviet Union. I grew up in Russia. That's why I speak Russian as well. Was there a Yanosh in your family? Why did they choose that name? They didn't. They asked us, can we pick up something? <laughs> uh, FBI took us uh, from the agency and uh, so FBI said that they're going to create some kind of a legend and uh, documents for us as well. After some time, they came to us and asked, can we help them to create the legends for us? So my wife and I, we spent several days just digging and uh, creating our own legends, which was kind of a part of the tradecraft. We built everything from the moment where we've been born, which street, uh, which school, kindergarten we've been going. We mixed it with our real lives as well. In this case, it's easy for you to present it to people with whom you're talking. Yeah. You're not going to make any stupid mistakes. And the devil, it is in details. So every detail should be precise and uh, real. As Ben has said in his book, many times. I mean, it's easy to lie, but it's difficult when you've got a whole panoply of lies and you've got to sustain and remember those. Ben, you're no stranger to unpicking the complex stories of spies with many identities. You investigated Eddie Chapman, who was such a successful double agent that he was awarded the Iron Cross, Agent Sonia, Oleg Gordievsky, amongst many others. Who holds the record for the most complex identity? I would imagine it's it's Sonia, isn't it? Yes. I mean, she was extraordinary and she extended it probably over the longest time. She had identities in China mm. and then Japanese occupied Manchuria and then Poland and then Switzerland and obviously in Nazi Germany and then eventually in Britain. But the best liar of all of them is probably still Kim Philby. Yes. He is extraordinary because he was deep in the intelligence service while at the same time working for another intelligence service. So you not only have to remember in that case the lies you're telling your colleagues, you have to remember the legend you're feeding them, even though it's partly true. And Philby was uncanny in his ability to remember which lies he'd already told. And of course, he was in a very odd position as well, which is that he had to succeed sufficiently within MI6 to prosper, while at the same time feeding everything that he could feed to the other side, the KGB, without giving himself away. And that's a tremendously difficult balancing act. 
Of course, Philby wasn't alone. I mean, that's the other thing that makes him so interesting and indeed so sort of vulnerable in some ways was that he was only one of dozens that the KGB had recruited, any one of whom could have imperiled his double life. Absolutely. When I was reading the book uh, about Kim Philby, I stuck in Lebanon, which I'm going to continue reading right after our podcast. And I love it. Uh, Mr. Philby, I guess he's uh, the best. He's the greatest. Well, Yanis, he's very kind. He's, he's in the spy among friends. Friends was the sort of old nickname for MI6. And he's referring to that extraordinary moment in Philby's life, which is really the pivotal moment when he was in Beirut, officially working for The Observer and, and The Economist. He, he officially left the spying game. He, he'd left MI6, but he was still working for the KGB. And his greatest friend, Nicholas Elliott, who had joined MI6 at the same time as he had, who'd risen up through the ranks with him and had been comprehensively betrayed by his closest friend for, for sort of 30 years. Nicholas Elliott confronted Philby. It's absolutely the crux moment of both their lives, actually, when two old friends appear to be having a polite cup of tea. It was recorded by MI6. They, they put microphones into the apartment in Beirut. And, and it's recorded. And it sounds ostensibly like two old friends having a charming cup of tea and remembering old times. In fact, a brutal ideological and sort of personal fist fight is taking place. It's a brutal profession. I mean, Jan, it must be interesting just on, on that Philby thing, because there's a sort of cultural thing here because your father was KGB, wasn't he? And you were so brought up to that. And at 16, you find yourself in the FSB. So were you aware of Philby when you were brought up? Because you would have seen him from the other side in your early existence. I mean, we grew up on uh, on stories like that. Philby, Abel, uh, they are like national heroes. In my case, we were born and grew up in the Soviet system. And of course, we we, we raised in the, in the Soviet ideology. And then from 1985, everything started to change. Yes. And more and more, you've got new information. And then it's like basically window changes. And uh, in 90s, when the uh, wall went down and the Soviet Union was dismissed, it was completely the whole world was turning up and down. And uh, we started to think about guys like Philby, Blake and others. It was already more, let's say, neutral view on what they've been doing. And then when I was introduced to the service, it became more obvious what they were up to, what they've been doing and how they've been used by the uh, Soviet intelligence services as well. Uh, because I was in a position of person who's supposed to handle some foreign assets as well. And from that moment, I started to realize and, and learn, actually, the motives why they decided to work for Russian intelligence, counterintelligence services. It's something that fascinates me about what motivates somebody to become a spy. Is it ideology? I mean, Ben, in the case of Ursula Kuczynski, Agent Sonia, it was very much, she was a German Jew, her early years in the, the Weimar Republic, the growth of fascism. So... Communism was a noble cause. Yes, I mean, I've never come across an important spy who didn't, at some level, claim ideological justification for what they were doing. It's almost essential to the territory. Equally, I've never come across a spy whose motives were not mixed. I don't think there's any such thing as a purely ideological spy. And Ursula's case is a very good example. As you say, yes, she was brought up in the Weimar Republic. She was a German Jew. She'd seen the worst of fascism on the march. She saw herself as an anti-fascist. That was her position. She joined the Communist Party. She never left the Communist Party. And she spied for the Communist Party for her entire professional career. And yet, of course, history pivoted around her because what had been, from the Western point of view, an entirely creditable position, which was to oppose the rise of Hitler and do everything that she could do to stop it, including at one point plotting his assassination, with the advent of the Cold War, she's suddenly on the other side of the fence from us. She would have said she was being entirely ideologically consistent, that she remained true to her to her original ideological convictions. But mixed in with that are a whole set of other elements. And, and Philby was like this, and Oleg Gordievsky is like this as well. There is adventure, there is romance, there is that extraordinary pleasure that certain people get from belonging to a tiny elite of people. It was once described to me as the, the ruthless exercise of private power. Mm. And Philby is the best example of that. I mean, particularly when you look at the sort of clubby world that he came from. I mean, Philby was a man of the upper middle class, had been to Westminster, had been to Cambridge, had joined the right clubs, joined the Athenaeum. But he'd also secretly joined the KGB. So MI6 is a pretty elite club. Mm -hmm. The KGB is a pretty elite club. To be the only KGB agent within MI6 was a club of one. <laughs> And and Philby, in some ways, I think, saw himself as belonging to ever more exclusive groups. In some ways, it's a slightly British <laughs> attitude, I think, that knowing a little bit more than the person standing next to you in the bus queue 
and not being prepared to let on that you do know a bit more confers a certain sort of power. So there's, yes. there's hubris in there. And there is this kind of romance. I mean, it is extremely dangerous, this game, as I'm sure Janos can attest. This is not something that you go into with an insouciant attitude. It's it's a matter of life and death. So there is a kind of love of recklessness. That is also true of all of them. They're all prepared, the ones I have written about, to, to take risks. And Eddie Chapman is the most extreme of all because he was an absolute risk addict. I mean, he, he was somebody who I think lived a life feeling that he was in a movie of his own devising, really. There was a sort of invisible film camera going the entire time just next door to him, and he was performing a lot of the time for that invisible camera. And so I think there is a sort of, even though it's deadly secret, there is a performative element to it. Sonia, she spans the whole history of communism. She was 10 at the time of the Bolshevik Revolution, and she lives to see the Berlin Wall pulled down. And in the meantime, her career takes her from Berlin to Shanghai, to Switzerland, to Poland. I mean, these extraordinary pictures that you paint. Shanghai around 1930, Switzerland when war breaks out around 1939, and the DDR, of course, in the sort of like 60s and 70s, where Ursula actually retires, unusually for a spy, is sort of allowed to have a fairly quiet retirement. Had you been in the tiny Cotswold village of Great Rollwright in 1943, you might have met Mrs. Len Burton, Ursula Burton, mother of three children. She baked particularly good cakes. She went to church every Sunday. She was a completely, apparently innocuous, actually rather boring, normal refugee housewife. In fact, in the back garden, in the privy in the back garden, she built a very powerful radio transmitter with which she was passing the secrets of how to build the atomic bomb to the Soviet Union. So she was not only very effective, she was extremely important. I mean, very few spies changed the course of history. She was one. But then if you spool back to her earliest life, she really became a spy by accident and through romance. She started off in Shanghai with her husband, who was not a communist. She was a member of the party. And she met a man called Ricard Sorge, um, who will be known to Janosch and, and anyone else who's interested in this story. I mean, he's really, I mean, he was described by Ian Fleming, no less, as being the most formidable spy in history. And he recruited Ursula as an agent for Soviet military intelligence. He himself was an officer in the Red Army, highly effective. I mean, really one of the, one of the great spies of all time. He recruited her and then he seduced her and they became lovers, even though Ursula was obviously married and had just had her first baby. And he was really the love of her life. And I think the intertwining in her case of the romantic and the emotional with the ideological and the tradecraft of espionage is really the story. Because when she died, aged 93, the one picture she still had on her wall, and bear in mind she'd been married twice by this point, had also had three children by three different men. The one picture on her wall was that of Ricard Sorge. So she loved him really to her dying day. And he set her off on this extraordinary journey, really. I mean, she, she ended up spying in Japanese-occupied Manchuria, which really could not have been more dangerous. I mean, running <laughs> secret agents undercover, running the partisans, using her radio. From there, she moved to Poland just on the eve of the Nazi invasion. Then she wound up in Switzerland, where she ran the biggest spy ring within the Third Reich, run on behalf of the Soviet Union, but passing on information of the highest quality. And then ending up in Britain, where her Jewish family had taken refuge from the Holocaust and began to live this extraordinary double life, where by day she was Mrs. Burton and by night she was Colonel Ursula Kaczynski of the Red Army, sending these extraordinary secrets back to Moscow and changing the course of history. Well, as if it's not enough to be giving the secrets of the atomic bomb to the Soviet Union, to also be running at one remove an American operation to find information about the effects of the war in, in Nazi Germany, but doing that at one remove, but meanwhile reporting all that back to the Soviets. So she was involved in two of the biggest operations in, in history there. While all the time, it has to be said, uh, with a husband and three children and, and running a domestic life as well. I mean, if you talk about work-life balance, <laughs> I mean, Ursula's work-life balance was absolutely extraordinary. I mean, the only difference was that her work was potentially lethal. 
I mean, had she been caught in Japanese-occupied Manchuria, or, or indeed even worse, in, in Switzerland, she would have been arrested, taken back to Germany, where she would have been tortured and executed, and her family would have been wiped out. She's the most effective woman spy I've ever come across. But she was also, in a way, it's a, it's a, it's, it's really is a woman's story because she is always trying to balance these two parts of her life. And to the end of her life, she wondered whether she'd been a good spy but a bad mother. Yes, because she did have to sacrifice. She had to give up her youngest son. She she had a choice, really. Mm. Her greatest camouflage, really, was that she was a woman. I mean, there were certain men in the 1940s and 50s who simply couldn't see past her gender. They could not believe that a woman with three children baking cakes could possibly be a super spy. It served her very well indeed. Jan, in your case, at what stage did your father sit you on his knee and say, now listen, Alexi, I have to tell you, I'm a spy. When did you discover that? And when were you recruited? Well, he was not a KGB. He was a military prosecutor's office. So he was basically controlling what KGB was doing. My mom, she was in KGB. That's quite a couple of parents but, there. I mean, I figured out who they are. That was like, I guess, four or five years old. reason is KGB, it was a state inside the state. And uh, they had their own even like vacation resorts where all the KGB officers with their families going for a summer vacation because you can't travel outside the country. You have to stay within the Soviet Union. So spending several summer months with my family, it means we've been going for this uh, type of vacation houses, resorts, which were under the KGB umbrella as well. So all my father's and mother's friends, they are part of the system, part of the KGB or some other great organizations with three letters. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you just, you can't stay out of it. You just, you know what's going on. It was pretty obvious. Uh, I spent several summers in a KGB summer camp for the kids of the KGB employees as well. So it was impossible to hide who your parents are. So in my case, recruitment was uh, just like old boys club. So basically you had no choice. You don't need it even to look for future employment. You know where you're going. And majority of the guys who joined the academy with me, it was the same thing as well. And you joined the FSB? That's correct. What are they teaching you to do when you're 17? Majority of our guys who've been later on going into the um, first main directory to SVR right now, majority of us are starting from the submarine at FSB Academy. It means because there's no way out. Like as long as you're in, you can't quit. Initially, I started as an investigator, um, specialization investigate crimes and espionage. And I had practice and later on work in Unit 1 of FSB investigative department. It means espionage, all the spy cases. It's a high-end unit with the top-notch professionals for whom I was learning from the beginning. The great part of it, you're not only trained as an investigator, you have to learn how your counterparts, uh, Western partners are operating as well, Yes. Uh, how they're recruiting sources, how they communicated, how they've been trained, what the mindset, what's the mentality, cultural aspects, everything, because you need it during your, your work, future work. Uh, and then later on, I was transferred to the operative unit in the Department of Economic Security in the FSB headquarters. And my specialization was recruiting sources among Russian foreign businessmen in the line of work of precious stone arts, uh, radioactive, like rare materials, including rare radioactive materials as well. So this is what, money laundering? Part of it. Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's a financial business. You were looking into essentially financial corruption, organized crime, that kind of thing. Counterintelligence support of Russian economics was the main support. So basically, because you have to collect the information about foreign companies' activity, foreign government, financial activity on Russian soil as well, and this is a huge deal. It's a, it's a, it's a big part of this work. Uh, you orienting and focusing your sources to bring you information information related to counterintelligence or intelligence operations. And there are lots of spies who've been involved in the financial activity. Uh, spies who are using financial cover as a consultant, as a businessman, company owner, stockholder, and so so on. Uh, it was pretty entertaining. It's like a hybrid. You dealing with the guys sharks from the financial world at the same time. You're looking for foreign spies working there. And of course, spies supposed to finance the operations too, right? So money, money talks in this case. This is at a time when there's another former Soviet Union. This is now Yeltsin era. Yeah, Yeltsin was absolute disaster time. Uh, during the Yeltsin time, I was in FSB Academy. I started my active service in uh, FSB after the recent guy took over the Kremlin. <laughs> Putin, that we mean. We just don't say his name now. You can. I, I don't want So <laughs> trust me. This is the interesting thing, because your father was working for the Russian state. You come in and you're working for the Russian state at the time when that Russian state is disintegrating. Yes. I was born and raised inside the Soviet system uh, with this ideological base as well. 
But you should understand that inside the KGB or any other free letter organizations, it was pretty liberal situation. So people been able to read books which have been prohibited for majority of the population. And uh, they had different perspective of what's going on inside the country as well. So from 1996-97, it was already in the air, obvious, that country goes uh, to the end. It's going to be, it's going to collapse sooner or later. Yep. Then country disintegrated uh, piece by piece. And a lot of people are getting very rich very quickly. During the collapse of the uh, Soviet Union, uh, lots of the guys who have been former government uh, officials, high rank or Komipati officials, they became oligarchs, so extremely rich people who went into the business. Uh, Russian financial market was absolute disaster. So besides the internal crooks, there are a lot of guys from the outside. The country came just to try to make some money and ripping off what remains of the Soviet Union. Yep. Uh, so FSB had no control over what's going on. They were just basically observing and uh, building the files and cases about what what's going on. Uh, it was a huge competition on the market uh, between different parties, including Russian government, police, General Procuracy Office, and uh, FSB and others. Uh, and they've been basically fighting for who's going to control the financial streams on the Russian market. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the corruption itself was involved. So FSB... Uh, as I understand, they decided to apply the old-fashioned method. Instead of just trying to fight it, you just need to take it over. We have a saying in this country, if you can't beat them, join them. It's not a join. A join, if it mean, doesn't mean you're going to control it. So here is a kind of more advanced, let's say, approach. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> let's give a credit to my former organization. So Credit Impex Bank became a platform from uh, from which FSB decided just to take step by step the whole market. Uh, in this case, uh, but it's going to be dual purposes always in Russia. Russia and Soviet Union. So one thing, you're going to collect information about all the legal activity, what's going on in Russia uh, from the inside the market as well. And besides that, FSB already had a bunch of the guys imp implanted into other commercial banks all around the country. Uh, they had uh, uh, FSB officers who've been um, placed in the banks undercover as a, as a consultants or people like operatives collecting information from these banks and being in touch with the bank owners as well. So, but Credit Impacts became this platform uh, where uh, the whole operation was under control of the FSB and the uh, bank was slightly pushed towards uh, team up and start work together with the uh, organized crime guys as well, mm. which was under control of Ivankov and Usayan. So, creating this kind of cooperation team between uh, bank with the protection from the FSB and organized crime uh, guys who've been really active and strong on the market, Step by step, they started to swallow and eat everyone else on the market. This whole operation was going from 2005 up to 2019 because the FSB, that was a big purge inside the FSB financial units in 2019. But 2008, you make a big decision. What are you doing at 2008 that means that you have to leave the country? It became clear that just besides doing something for your country, this already turned into the money-making business for government officials, including the high-rank FSB guys, because everyone figured out that it's not just the way to gather some information and maybe finally beat all this illegal activity, but that's the way to make lots of money and um, became rich. And were you tempted to do that too? Well, I mean, I was I was paid by bank. I was not paid by, by the state in this case. I was an active reserve. So yes, I mean, at some point we can say I was making some money out of it, but I can't say I was I was not a partner of the bank. I was, not, I was uh, the guy who knew a lot and I was the guy who was carrying money to FSB officials from the bank. And then it reaches a crisis. Yeah. I saw the guys um, in, in, in FSB, high rank guys, who've been basically on daily basis telling us how we should love our country, how we should sacrifice everything for our country, and how we should be honest and uh, uh, modest. And then for lunch, I'm going to meet the same guys. I'm going to bring them piles of cash from the bank for the services they've been providing. So this is kind of a breaking point as well. You're losing trust to the system in this moment. At some point, this became already too much, and I was complaining... Uh, which I was supposed not supposed to do, I guess. Big mistake. Yeah. <laughs> One of the main rules in the, in the espionage or counterintelligence, you listen more, say less. In my case, I was kind of uh, a bit mouthy about what's going on. And I got a choice basically to, to leave as an officer or someone else is going to do it for me or I just can leave. Just leave everything. Are you familiar with that phrase, be an officer? No, I'm not. I think it's a wonderful phrase. Sort of do the decent thing. It's kind of here's a revolver. No, revolver can give you a chance for a mistake. In this case, it was PM or TT. It means it's automatic. So <laughs> it's like. <laughs> but there it is. There is the choice for you. Be an officer. In other words, you're going to have to shoot yourself or we'll do it for you or you have to get out. 
But I guess three, just because I was part of the uh, old boys club, just because that's why I've got the third choice. But in this case, you're going to have all the blame, all the shame. You're going you're gonna to have all the responsibility on you. Not only were your mother and father spies, if I could put that, but your wife also, is that correct, Victoria? And she was the one who came up with the plan to get you out of the country. Yes. But by the way, it's, it's really great because in our family, no one is asking, how was your day? <laughs> Which is great. <laughs> so how did you get out? Initially, I checked uh, a few things with my, uh, my mentor and my friend who was a high rank official inside the system. And I met him a night uh, right after my chat with the uh, bank official, who was my father's friend. And uh, I asked him, can we figure out what's going on? Is I on a search list or something like official, unofficial? So he did a few um, calls and he said, my wife and I, were on the flag. Uh, it means they are looking for us. If we're going to try to cross the country, something is going to happen. Like basically, it looked like they gave me this third opportunity, but at the same time, I need to find a way how to use it because obviously if you have a flag on you, you can't go anywhere. It's just that you, you're doomed, you're done. So he helped me. Uh, he pulled some strings and uh, they gave me the uh, green corridor. So they used this uh, thing from my past as an exchange student. And my wife, already knowing this, so we have the potential exit point from Russia, uh, she booked multiple tickets in different airports all around the Moscow area. And uh, we have four or five uh, on different uh, flights, different directions, all the same time slot, plus minus 30, 40 minutes. And we used one of them and we, we left. Were you tempted at this point to contact a foreign intelligence agency? I mean, it's traditional at these moments if you are either for ideological or other reasons, estranged from the intelligence service that you work for, one of the fallbacks, and there are many stories that show this, is to go to the other side and say, I'm in trouble, I've got great information, which you clearly had, get me out of here. Did you contact MI6? Did you try the CIA? You have to look at the time frame, right? Uh, I had no idea about, uh, even didn't discuss any possibility to chat with any foreign intelligence service and ask for help. Reasons first, we've been on Russian soil. Reason two, the only way to get in touch with them, you should know them in person. Or second, you have to approach them, which means you have to go for the embassy or some potential spy nest. And the moment I had this lovely chat with the owner of the bank, and the uh, moment I spoke with my FSB guy, and the moment we left, it was within 72 hours. Okay, so it's very fast. So even if, hypothetically, I can assume that I could establish the contact with the Foreign Intelligence Service, it will be highly likely we ended up in a huge bureaucratic uh, loop because they, they need some time to verify who we are, what we are. Mm. Second, they would have had a lot of issues how to hide us on Russian soil under the FSB surveillance and contract surveillance control. And then it would have been uh, the third problem, how they're going to evacuate us from Russia under pressure from the FSB surveillance teams. Difficult, but not impossible. It's happened. I mean, Gordievsky yes. made his way out. You'd have been very valuable to them. It was different times, guys. I mean, you, you have to understand that uh, Gordievsky think it was 85. So not that much of the electronic surveillance applied, not that much of the computer systems applied. Sure. Having some uh, forged documents and no one was basically chasing him. He had enough time to prepare and just do it. Ben, explain how Gordievsky got out. Well, Gordievsky, who is still living in a safe house in Britain, he was really the most important asset that Western intelligence had inside the Soviet intelligence service. He, for ideological reasons, had spied for MI6 for nearly a decade. He'd ended up in Britain, where he was appointed the head of the KGB in Britain when he was betrayed. Um, he was summoned back to Moscow. He didn't know why he was summoned back to Moscow. Um, he thought he was being brought back to be anointed as head of the KGB residentura here in London. He got back, he realised immediately that he was in deep, deep trouble, and he had to activate his escape plan, which was called Operation Pimlico, which had been in preparation, well, in different forms for, for more than seven years by this point. And this was an exfiltration plan, and it, was, it sounds like something that comes straight from a John le Carré novel. His signal for indicating to MI6 that he needed to be exfiltrated was that he had to be seen on a corner of a particular street on a particular day at a particular time holding, believe it or not, a plastic Safeways bag from the supermarket. <laughs> and if that was spotted, uh, the MI6 officer would acknowledge the receipt of the, of the escape signal by walking past him and eating a Mars bar. 
or a Kit Kat. It had to be a, a Western bar of chocolate. And that was the sign that Gordievsky could know that the escape plan was on. And he then had to make his way to a rendezvous near the Finnish border. He was under complete surveillance at this point. I mean, the KGB was onto him. They knew what he was up to and they were following his every movement. And um, at the same time, two MI6 officers with their wives as cover, and in one case with a baby, had to meet him in the rendezvous point. But that's really why I was asking, Anosh, is that, yes, it would have been very difficult, I'm absolutely sure, but you would have been hugely valuable to any Western intelligence service. And the cover you would have had would surely have been, I'm an FSB officer, of course I have contact with foreigners. And and don't tell me that some of the foreigners you were dealing with were not themselves potentially either CIA or MI6 plants. I mean... That's not, not for record. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can I can reveal, Ben, I think, so what happened was the plan, Yamashik, the plan got you through various means to the Dominican Republic, where you were able to go because it was, there was, it was, it was easier because you didn't need a visa to get to the Dominican Republic. Lilo there for a little while and then you walked into the American consulate in Santo Domingo. Yeah. That's where you revealed yourself. Your life in a sense is in your hands here because you've already fled Russia but you haven't actually said right I'm going to work for a foreign intelligence agency. No. So take us through you and your wife walking into the American consulate. Honestly, when we landed in the Dominican Republic, it was a huge stress and uh, we had no idea what will be next. We've been trying to collect some information, what's going on in Russia. I had a few burner phones with uh, SIM cards from Baltic states, which we've been using to connect with people whom I trusted and people who've been feeding us with information, what's going on. So when we understood that there are people on our our tail and uh, it's getting worse extremely fast, we had to make a decision what we're going to do. We had some possibilities maybe to get some local documents, some settlers and passports. But then what? Where we can go with that one? Uh, how are we going to hide? How are we going to run? Because you need resources, you need connections, uh, and you need at least a backstory. It's almost impossible. And it's not, again, it's not a, a 70s, 60s, or 50s where, like, no electronics, nothing, and you just can disappear. If you have a new passport, you just can force the picture, and then they said, you're a new person, no one can look for you. No traces. Nowadays, it's quite different. So it was absolutely tough decision. We knew if we do it, that basically our past life is just over and uh, we are in a like walking dead mode. We have to cut ties with all our friends. If you're crossing this, it's over. So we made decision and uh, we went to uh, US embassy. It was a pretty funny moment. Uh, Victoria and I, we've been dressed as a tourists. I had a funny Panama head with some coins on it. I had a camera uh, on my chest. I had shorts and flip-flops. My wife was dressed really touristic way as well. We've been standing in this long line next to the wall because a lot of people from Venezuela, they've been applying to get into the United States. Uh, security guys, uh, local guys, Dominican guys uh, on the entrance, they've been not helpful at all. So uh, my wife, uh, she speaks Spanish, um, and uh, she explained to them that we need to talk with the security guys. They said, like, we are security. So listening to this conversation for about 15 minutes, I just, I, I went a bit aggressive. I said, like, guys, no, we don't need you. We need real security guys with American <laughs> people to talk. So they brought um, some local uh, local guys as well, but he was head of the security, and I explained this to him again. He was thinking for a few minutes, just quiet, and he went inside, and then he just came to us back, and he get us in inside the uh, inside the uh, embassy. Uh, I just opened my backpack, and without showing anything to the local guy, I just showed her my credential. So immediately told the local Dominican guy just to disappear, basically, and he saw nothing. Uh, we had a, a quick, lovely chat with the. Um, a security personnel person from American embassy and then established a meeting with them. That's it. Pretty simple. So they knew what's going on and uh, it was pretty quick and fast. A uh, person was shocked, I guess, for them in the Dominican Republic, nothing happening except people trying to get to US. Well, as the intelligence person in a foreign country like that, it's the thing you pray for. I mean, you've been sitting there, as you say, sort of slightly twiddling your thumbs in the Dominican Republic and what you really want is a walk-in. But a walk-in... <laughs> is a very difficult thing because walk-ins are by definition dangerous. I mean, historically, the walk-ins, frequently a walk-in is a dangle, to use another piece of sort of intelligence jargon. A a walk-in may be just an attempt to pull you into what is likely to be or quite frequently is a deception. Many walk-ins turn out to be that way. So I imagine that person that you had the lovely chat with in the Dominican Republic was probably internally having a small heart attack at this point, (laughs) trying to work out whether you were for real or whether you were a dangle. 
I mean, it's um, it's a classic situation. Yeah, it's like you can look, but you can't bite. Mm. Within the next few days, we've been approached by the person who was in charge of the whole Dominican Republic, uh, head of station, with whom we spent several several days just talking. And the um, person actually was really, really excited. It made his day. Yeah, it, it was completely <laughs> game-changing thing, like from this boring club of uh, life on, 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 on a beach and the cocktails and just talking about some, some drug trafficking and some other stuff. It immediately was something really happening here. Mm. Did they fix you up with the catamaran, the worst trip of your life, to Puerto Rico? And then on to America. Yeah, I, st- I still don't like going boats. It was quite <laughs> un- unpleasant because uh, it was a storm uh, going for past several days. Mm-hmm. You're going up and then almost like 85 degrees going down. You then offer yourself up with the information that you have on money laundering, on organized crime and this to... Now, was it the CIA or the FBI? Initially, idea was just not to go to the United States. And what we never asked about that. Goal was just to maybe give us documents from the third country. We're going to help U.S. government. And it's a lies to bust this international money laundering operation. They're going to help us. We're going to help them. We're done. So we will disappear. We're going to have our uh, quiet life. I might open some flower shop somewhere in, in, in Portugal uh, <laughs> and just disappear. So... Then, as I understand, uh, agency shared the information with the FBI. FBI looked at the information, and it was right in the way what they need because they've been running this global investigation about uh, this illegal financial operations. And they took us over from the, uh, from the agency, and that was their initiative to bring us to the United States. So after this ocean trip, we ended up uh, in Puerto Rico, from which we, uh, FBI flew us on their uh, Gulfstream jet to the U.S., well, that was more comfortable. Yes, and except we've been soaked wet completely, like, and it's and and it's uh, um and it, it was really funny. Then FBI guys brought on this uh, Porsche uh, Gulfstream jet the subway sandwiches. <laughs> we ended up in Virginia, and then uh, after some time, several months, let's say evaluation process, and uh, they've been checking who we are. They then we spent some time in uh, Philadelphia, and then after that in Portland, Oregon. And the idea behind the Portland, Oregon. It's a small, nice, lovely place. It's somewhere between the San Francisco and Seattle, and uh, it's everything is under government control. Everything could be done really quick. Uh, no need to wait for anything. Uh, we, they're going to provide us with the documents within six months up to a year. Uh, eight years later, nothing happens. So, <laughs> so you you offer them the expertise, your knowledge of money laundering, and. There's a little bit of a turf war, I sense, between the FBI and CIA, and, and they don't really know how to use you. And you find yourself in a restaurant, and a couple of agents talk to you, and a woman puts her purse down in front of you and tells you that they're not going to use you anymore, that your contract is terminated, and you realize it's not just a purse. Well, I mean, I can figure out if you have a, by the shape, if you have a gun on your purse or not. It's, it's, it's pretty obvious. And it's a purse. It's not a duffel bag. It's just a woman's purse. So it's, it's pretty obvious what's, what was in it. What do you think at that moment? Well, my, my main, my, my, my kind of thought was it's completely unprofessional. They're just dumb to do so. And it seems like they've been running out of the problem instead of trying to fix it. That's what was in my mind. Also, honestly, we we had we were in touch with other FBI guys uh, from the headquarters and other offices as well. They've been extremely supportive, and they uh, didn't understand what the hell just happened, uh, why the local guys are acting this way, and uh, especially it was not a person who was in touch with us for all these years. So you find yourself in a situation. So you offered them your services. You do various bits and pieces for them for those years between 2008 and 2013 and they pay you but they don't take you in they don't take responsibility say right you're, you're working for us and you have citizenship they didn't give you that no what's your status we're trying to convert our past into our future that's the best explanation that's why i'm uh, writing some stories and um trying to to uh move forward without looking back that's what we do but are you in a kind of stateless limbo yeah i mean if i could have a united nations passport that would be fantastic what a fascinating story this is the thing so this is somebody who offers their services to the other side and the other side uses some of them and then says do you know what you know we're going to let you go it's something that again in reading your books is people who make these sacrifices and then they're cut loose yes absolutely and and that can be part of an ongoing play i mean we're not interested in you we're not we don't care you know, can be a way of soliciting or eliciting more cooperation from someone. There are many ways of doing this. But I mean, on a more general note, yes, I mean, the, these stories have a human cost. 
And I was going to ask Janosch, I mean, we think of spy stories often as if they are somehow sort of moral parables, really, sort of stories of black and white. In fact, we often think of history in this way, particularly in, in modern times. We tend to look back on the past as good or evil, right or wrong. And of course, that's not the way it goes. And it's certainly not the way that the espionage world works. And People get chewed up by this. The more I write about it, the more I've come to the sort of realisation that that secrecy is bad for everybody in the end. I mean, it may serve the state. It may be very useful. It may make us safer. It frequently does. Sometimes it changes the course of history. Gordievsky is a very good example. But the human beings involved in it are very often seriously damaged by it and the outcomes they imagine are, are not those that happen i mean philby's another very good example you know he imagined that he would turn up in moscow and that he would be fated as a kgb colonel and that he would be lauded and loved for the rest of his life and it wasn't like that he had his last years were miserable and then uh, you know again with the story of ursula i mean her children really suffered from this story they really did the human cost of these stories is often very very high well i was thinking in particular the character rudy hamburger who was uh, uh, her first husband uh, the the father of her first child and in a way a sort of reluctance by he sort of uh, he resisted it for quite a while and then they were in shanghai then he becomes more involved particularly as he sees what's happening in in germany and the nazis and, and fascism so he he goes over he becomes a spy and he ends up in a gulag in the most desperate situation for for years he does i mean in a way, he became a spy in order to try to keep Ursula. I mean, it was sort of part of his love for her was to sort of demonstrate to her that he was also prepared to take the same sort of risks that she was. Um, she had sort of moved on in her life by that point. And, and the poor old Rudy's problem was that he was initially reluctant, latterly very enthusiastic, but completely hopeless. I mean, he was he was a useless spy um, and he was eventually caught by the Western intelligence services in Iran uh, working for the Soviet Union. Um, and this was at the tail end of the war. So the allies, the Soviet Union was allied with America and Britain. So he thought he was going to be absolutely fine. Um, so he went back to Moscow again, expecting a hero's welcome, not unlike Kim Philby. And in the paranoid Stalinist state, they took one look at him and said, you've been in touch with Western intelligence services, you're suspect. And he spent 10 years years in the gulag i mean it's a very good example of of the unintended consequences of these stories it's it's not the world of james bond it's a constant uh, psychological pressure it doesn't matter you you defected to war you're just working for your country or some, something else you can't trust anyone no one's going to trust you it's like a body of flies you're swimming inside this body of flies and when you join the service it doesn't mean it's a counterintelligence or intelligence you have to accept that this will be your new life that's it all the past is over and there is no way you can leave it. No, it's going to be always chasing you. You have to stay in it. It's a huge psychological and mental damage as well because you're evaluating and see things differently from the moment you join the service. And you're alone. You can't trust anyone. Yes, you're alone. Well, the only friends whom you're going to have, you're going to consider as a friends people from the same organizations or from the same kind of, let's say, same world as you are. But at the same time, you can't trust them completely. They can trust you. So that's the absolutely uh, horrifying situation at the same time as well. And there is no future. There's no like something like tomorrow. No matter what you do, you're doing now. You can plan something on the future, but you're like one day hero because you not, not, don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. It's like what we, we, uh, my wife and I have been going for all these years. We had no, no tomorrow, we had no future at all. It's like you're living now and you're trying to get as much as you can from today. It's sort of the second time it's happened to you, hasn't it? Because when you were in the bank and you spoke, you spoke out then, and instead of them saying, yes, we can fix this, we, we can do something about it, they said, well, you know, you've got a choice. You can either, you can either shoot yourself, be shot, or, or leave. So you leave and you go to America and you think, what, what was, were you motivated? You thought, I want to do some good. I want to, was it, was there an ideological motive as well? You thought I can actually use my experience and I can fight evil in some sense. I can, I know that there are bad people doing bad things and I can do something about this. Of course. What was your motivation? First of all, to protect my, my wife and I, to protect us as a, as a family, as who we are, and um, do something good. And uh, we've got a lot of feedback and lots of thank you from the uh, FBI guys and agency guys and other uh, organizations uh, from Britain as well for what we've been doing and uh, for help we've been providing to them. At some point, I guess we, we may be slightly 
made uh, the country where we're living right now in this world a bit safer because people figure out what's going on and they can see things which they were not able to see before. You found other other things to do? Well, actually, I want to say thank you to US government because they left us in this situation. So I had enough free time to figure out what I can do. Okay. And because we've been unemployable uh, for a long period of time because people, actually people have been more afraid that not because we've been, we are from Russia and trained by Russians, but that we've been working with US government. That's, that's actually what's more creating more more complications uh, to be employed. So yeah, we've got help from um, uh, from friends and uh, guys from agency as well. They kind of been motivating me to maybe to do some writing and start to get involved in the showbiz. I was resisting to that. Then I was. I, they explained to me that basically, in the entertainment industry and the showbiz, no one cares who you are. They're just more looking for cool stories, and it's more forgiving than the uh, government work. And actually. It has uh, less hypocrisy than work for a government. <laughs> Fantastic. So you are writing fiction. Is that is that right? This, that is correct. Look at this. Red Atlantis, Janos' new book. There you go. A raw and brutal thriller ripped from tomorrow's headlines. That completes the circle because most spies that I've come across are also frustrated writers. Because, of course, the work of a, of a spy is not so different from that of a novelist. What you're doing is trying to create a false world, an artificial world, and persuade other people that it's true. And the better you are at that, the better you're going to be at this game. And it's no accident, I think, that you know some of the greatest writers of the 20th century were themselves former intelligence officers. John le Carre, Graham Greene, Somerset Maugham, Ian Fleming, John Buchan, they'd all been in the intelligence game. What did Stella Remington do the moment she stepped down from being head of MI5? She became a novelist. I think it's I think it's both splendid and also in some ways predictable that in your in your new life, you know, you've decided that the sort of artificial world of of fiction is one for you. Does that mean that you would have loved to have been a spy, Ben? <laughs> well, I couldn't possibly say. <laughs> Maybe you um, are. Who knows? No. It's <laughs> no, I'd have been hopeless. No, no. I mean, I have absolutely. I mean, look, as I've just demonstrated, I find it extremely hard to keep a secret. I was approached when I was first left university, but they spotted very quickly that I really wasn't cut out for it. Now we are developing a few projects in a cooperation with uh, a few producers, really kind of, they're pretty well-known guys, uh, Adam uh, Davidson and Jonathan Stern. We're working on some really cool TV series concept. It's about the financial crimes. It's going to be like a dark, dark comedy and a Guy Ritchie type of thing. And also we, we're in touch with the former uh, spies um, they have their own production companies and uh, they are generating some you know, new material, new content. Um, for example, we're in touch with the Spycraft Entertainment. It's a drone cipher. He's a spy legend and uh, Jerry Oshie, a friend of ours. And uh, it's, it's great. Like we throwing these ideas, we, we brainstorming some crazy stuff and uh, I guess it's getting some, some traction. Uh, the, the main challenge for us is how to turn the boring spy stories into something which people want to laugh and uh, read and uh, want to watch. Well, as Ben would say, no such thing as a boring spy story. We are drawn to them, Ben, aren't we? And you are drawn to them. What is it that you think attracts people? Is it espionage? It's, it's addictive and we love this alternative world. We love secrets. I think it's that. I think there's also something elementally attractive for everybody about the idea of a double life. That, that the me that you see on the outside is not the me that is there on the inside, is kind of as old as human nature. And I think it's a fantasy that that people entertain down the ages, but, but espionage in a way allows you to live it out, to be someone in one world and to be someone completely different in another is a very attractive thought, I think. And it's one that, you know, every time anyone ever sees a James Bond film, a little part of them goes, gosh, you know, I wonder if I could do that. And also, I mean, espionage is important. Espionage matters. I mean, I suspect it matters more today than at any time in history. I mean, there is more, admittedly, it is much more, it's less human intelligence these days than signals intelligence, the great cleavage within intelligence between humint and sigint. And of course, it's all it's all about you know, texts and, and phones and, and, and the internet. But still, the human element is absolutely vital. And it still boils down to a very simple question, which is, you know, you have to look someone in the eye and see if you can trust them. So there's a there are human dramas at the heart of this that are, I think, just extraordinarily interesting. Who can you trust? And and in a way, I love writing about it because true espionage stories, real life espionage stories, factual espionage stories, allow one to invade, really, the area that is normally colonised by novelists. 
it's it's loyalty and love and betrayal and adventure and romance and jeopardy and yet it's all true that's the great pleasure of it is that spies spies are, are also tremendously unreliable narrators they uh, but spies also love talking about their pasts so if you get the right combination yes well, Jan, you you mentioned you mentioned the big screen, and and also we talked about we talked about Ian Fleming. Now those come together, don't they, in another project of yours, Ben, which is Operation Mincemeat. Well, in a way, it's the most well, it's certainly one of the most successful deception stories of all time. It was actually the brainchild of Ian Fleming, who was <laughs> long before he um, put pen to paper as a, as a novelist, was a, assistant to the head of naval intelligence during the war. And one of the things that Fleming did was to draw up a list of kind of outlandish ideas that might be used to kind of baffle and bamboozle the Germans. It's a ridiculous document. It's full of the most bonkers ideas. But one of them was, let's get a dead body, let's equip it with false papers, and then let's float it ashore somewhere where the Germans will find it. And that is what they did. Montague and Chumley, wonderful names, played in the film by Colin Firth and Matthew McFadden. Uh, they got hold of a dead body. They gave him a completely new identity. He was a dead spy, effectively, and they floated him ashore with false papers indicating that the great Anglo-American um, armada preparing to set off from North Africa was actually aiming for Greece and not for Sicily. It was a classic bait and switch. They were, they were trying to persuade the Germans that the attack was coming somewhere where it wasn't. And they floated the body ashore. And it's an extraordinary story because this kind of dead man who had actually been a poor Welsh tramp who'd, who'd poisoned himself with rat poison in a in a warehouse in King's Cross, ended up as William Martin of the Royal Marines, someone that he'd never been. And thanks to the Bletchley Park intercepts, you can actually follow this lie as it is swallowed whole and goes down the gullet of German intelligence. And it changed the course of that campaign. It saved countless i mean innumerable lives and it's a it's a it's a fascinating and rather poignant story of sort of imagination really i mean these were both frustrated novelists to go back to that point yes. and they just invented a character and invested him with a father and a lover and he was even carrying a photograph of a girl in his wallet i mean they went completely over the top actually to try and sort of persuade the germans who picked up this body and, and got hold of the of the false papers that it was all true and it diverted Many, many troops. Extraordinary. So that's your most current. And have you got uh, another book are you writing now? Do you find it easier to, to, to go a little bit further back in the past? Or is there stuff that's very recent? Is there a sort of statute of limitations? You have to wait a certain amount of time? <laughs> well, to get the material from British intelligence, I mean, MI5 releases its files these days. MI6 doesn't and probably never will. But MI5 does. Uh, and it does so on a sort of timely basis. After 50 years, they can start to release information. So that is a, you know, that's a, that's a huge treasure trove of material I mean that's absolutely wonderful when they start producing that stuff but no I, I dot back and forth actually I mean um, the book about Oleg Gordievsky is probably the most modern one I did um, because that one all the MI6 offices involved in that are still alive and so I was able to interview them so that was a sort of that was in a way that was more of a sort of investigative operation than a historical one but actually the moment I'm deep in Colditz uh, my next book is about the inside story of Colditz so I've um, during lockdown I mean I've practically grown a moustache and started tunnelling out but <laughs> the real story of Colditz again is is very different from the mythical one that we all inherited from the black and white TV series of our youth. I mean, the real story of Colditz is really a story about, about class and race and sexuality and all sorts of things that the stiff upper lip generation of the sort of post-war years didn't really want to talk about. Um, so, so, so the real story of Colditz is utterly fascinating. Can't wait for that. I did laugh because when you say that documents are released after a while, because I got caught up in it myself because uh, some years ago, yeah, and you won't know this, but some years ago, 93, when I was starting at Channel 4, we decided we'd sort of push the envelope a little bit and I rang up some backbenchers pretending to be the Prime Minister uh, and they fell for it. And, um, but unfortunately, it set a few alarm bells ringing at, at in Westminster, and so they still and people so they had to find out who was making the call, and then they had to ring up the backbenchers, ring up the, the politicians, and tell them that it wasn't John Major that they'd spoken to, <laughs> and one of them wouldn't believe him. He said, "No, no, no, don't be so silly. I mean, that call has saved his bacon." And what I didn't know, and this is this is the extraordinary thing about no matter how satirical you think you're being, real life has a habit of being even more interesting. That the people I was ringing were actually plotting a revolt against the prime minister and because they'd had a phone call 
from the Prime Minister himself, or so they thought, uh, they called it off. As the man said, that call has saved his bacon. So they called off the rebellion. And so I didn't stop Brexit, but I think I slowed it down by about 27 years. <laughs> um, Jan, I mean, it's a remarkable story, as we said. You know, there you go. You make it over to America. They use you a little bit and then they kind of spit you out a little bit. But do you feel safe now? Could you have to look over your shoulder? Can you relax in any sense? Can a spy ever relax? No. Uh, it doesn't matter what happened with you. You just retired or you um, you left the service or, or they left you in cold. You you can't relax. It's gonna, you're always going to have this tension. You, you're going to have this pressure and uh, some uh, thoughts and you're always going to look over your shoulder. That's for sure. Uh, in my case, the best advice is just pay your life insurance on time. That's going to be fine. So that's <laughs> that's that's the best advice you, yeah, I can give you. Like, the, the, I mean, the, the rest won't work as well. If if they're going to send someone's going to be well trained people, um, and uh, everything is going to happen fairly quick. It's not a movie with like forty five minutes shot out. So. And what of your parents? They were both in the intelligence service. Have their lives been affected? They must have been radically affected. But how do they feel about what you've done? Uh, for for them, I'm a traitor. I'm enemy of the state. We are not in touch by all means. And uh, my chat with the uh, bank owner basically was authorized by my dad. Wow. So that's, I mean, that was kind of, that's it. It's over. I think that illustrates really movingly that the, the human cost point I was making earlier, that, that, you know, there is a cost to these stories. Of course. What I found really fascinating in in, uh, in Ben and your book and my friend's book, Brian Dance and the Spice Son, you guys were able to kind of unlock this human part of the story. What I was reading before, it was more, it's basically like reading the intelligence report with uh, some plus and minuses, but you guys were able to bring this uh, human part of the story. Well, it's the human part that always fascinates me. The tradecraft is is fascinating, but it's the human part. And I'm delighted you've, you've managed to find a new life. In a way, the only other person I can compare you to is Oleg Gordievsky, who who was exfiltrated in 1985. And he lives in a safe house in suburban Britain under an assumed name, under 24-hour surveillance. He has a permanent guard in his house now, particularly since the Skripal poisoning. He is not a friend of, of Russia. He is not a friend of Putin. He is a marked man in many ways. He can't go to the pub. He can't go shop. You know, his whole life, he's a prisoner. He's a prisoner of history. And um, but he does it. He has such sort of um, I don't know. He's made of some incredible Russian granite that never never seems to sort of deteriorate or or, or break down. Yeah, and Ben mentioned uh, Skripal poisoning. What was your reaction? What did you think? And indeed, the one before that, the Litvinenko. Well, uh, Litvinenko was. I mean, I can't say it was successful, but it was for them. For for the other guys, it was a, a successful operation. Uh, on on Skripal, it was a failed, and then they had, I guess, in news it were several more attempts with using the same type of poison. Do you think the state has gone rogue? Do you think that the, that this is Putin himself, or do you think this is rogue agents trying to please him? I don't know. That that's that's really great question. I'm not sure it was the uh, um, killing attempt or it was sending in the message. That's the big difference. They know how to kill. That's for sure. And they had uh, several uh, really successful operations behind their belt, uh, even recent ones. Um, even in Chechnya, they poisoned this uh, yeah. Emir Khatab. But uh, so so I don't know. I don't know what was that. It was a message, a warning that we're always looking for you guys. You can't relax. You can't live just a normal life. You have to look over your shoulder. A message for others, uh, maybe it was not even for the West. Message was maybe for uh, internal use, to prevent mm-hmm. others from doing what Skripal done and uh, what I've done and other guys. So that's we, we don't know that. Well, that's another another story. I was just thinking. So maybe one day, Jan Ben will write your story. I'll, I'll give you a title because if we we know about the spy who came in from the cold, but maybe you're the spy who was sent out into the cold. Came from cold, left in cold. Uh, left in the cold, absolutely. Well, thank you so much um, for joining us, Ben. Thank you again. We talked about Agent Sonia, but of course, you have many, many books and Operation Mincemeat coming out. All of it fascinating. And for the reason that you said, because underneath all the fascinating stories of spycraft and all the interconnection of these these worlds, is the human story underneath it. And that's what you tell so well. And what, Jan, you have, you have lived and illustrated with your life. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me on The Spying Game. Next time on Spyscapes, The Spying Game, Rory is joined by former CIA officer Amaryllis Fox and the 355 director and Mr. and Mrs. Smith screenwriter Simon Kinberg. 
It's a very lonely job. You have circle upon circle upon circle of people who are kind of farther and farther away from your truth. There you are in like the central prison circle and there's no one in there with you. I do feel like part of the appeal of playing a spy for actors is that it feels so second nature to them, that they do feel a kinship with spies. That's one of the things we forget is how incredibly young the people who do this work are and always have been. And in part, that's because, you know, the the most challenging operations are often given to the youngest officers because they haven't been out in the field long enough for anybody to suspect what they do for a living. The scariest part of the work that I did is wading into the worldview of the person that, that you perhaps hate and fear most in the world and actually giving it the time of day. The Spying Game is available now wherever you get your podcasts or you can listen to episodes a week early ad-free by subscribing to Spyscape Plus on Apple Podcasts. Do you have what it takes to be a true spy? Now you can put your spy skills to the test with Spy Games. Spy Games is the thrilling new experience at Spyscape in New York. Test your strategy, agility and teamwork in high-tech game rooms developed with experts from CIA and Special Ops to stretch your physical and mental agility. Inspired by the CIA's operational training at the farm, Spy Games will help you develop strengths you didn't know you had. Think true spies in real life. Find out more at spygames.com.